morning, church. It is good to be back. It is good to be back in John. Let's jump right in. John chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 19 through 28. You can find those on page 900 and, oh, 886 in the Pew Bible. Now let's begin this morning. Let's begin my first sermon of the new year with the question that begins our text. Who are you? That's how our text begins. Who are you? Or who are we as a church? That's an important question that we need to answer from time to time. Woodside Community Church, who are we and what are we for? Let's seek to answer that question as we begin a new year. A few years back when I was beginning in ministry, church mission and vision statements were all the rage in the church planting world. I think that's become less of the case in recent years. Uh, Some people can't even agree on exactly what they are. Many people get all cute and creative as they construct these statements. Uh, This is a problem because the church doesn't get to define its mission. We don't get to define our mission. Jesus defines our mission. And clarity is a good thing. If these statements help with clarity, then great. But if they confuse or if they don't align with Christ's mission, then not great. Because Jesus is very clear about what is the mission of the church. If a mission statement defines the what of a church, then Jesus gives us that what, that mission in Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's the mission, period. That's the thing that Jesus commands the church to do. What about vision? What's a vision statement? Well, a vision statement, again, people disagree and define them differently, but it's more the the how we are going to accomplish the what. And so years ago, we decided to keep things simple and biblical. Instead of something catchy and creative, we went with 1 Corinthians 1.23. We preach Christ crucified. That's it. That's our vision. That's how we are going to accomplish the mission Christ has given us to make disciples. We make disciples of Christ by preaching Christ. That's what we're going to be about here at Woodside. That's what you got from VJ and Mike the last two weeks. That's hopefully what you're going to get from me, Christ. Why is that? Why is this the emphasis? Why is this uh, both the method and and the means and and the goal? Well, I was listening to a pastor over break argue, and I really like this. He argued that we should personally and corporately have one mission statement along with Matthew 28. We add this, add this and keep this in your brain. Here's the mission statement he said we must all have. People without Christ go to hell. That should be our mission statement. People without Christ go to hell. I like that. We preach Christ crucified. Why? Because people without Christ go to hell. Do we believe that? Does that eternally important truth have any impact on your daily activity? If not, then maybe we need to re-examine and re-emphasize our identity, for activity always flows from identity. So who are you and who are we? Well, this passage is going to tell us. And in doing so, I hope this passage can help us to to set the tone and the course for our year. Now, my family uh, likes to play games when we are together. We get together, we always play silly games. Henry's family does math problems when they get together. We're not as cool or intelligent. We play silly games. Oh, well. One night, uh, two weeks ago, we were sitting at the beach. We were passing around these conversation starter questions. And one of the questions was this. It was, what product, service, place, or event are you so enthusiastic about that you'd make a good salesperson or spokesperson for it? What thing are you so enthusiastic about that you'd make a good salesperson or spokesperson for it? Uh, Melissa's answer was the the Peloton app. Uh, We couldn't afford the fancy expensive bike because it's a million dollars, but we got a cheap knockoff and we use the app and and we love it. Uh, My answer would be books or, or chip. Uh, we got back to the city on Wednesday, and the first thing that we did is we bought chip uh, cookies. Um, and then I declared to Melissa that this would be my last chip for a while, because it's healthy eating time. So we'll, we'll see how long that lasts. Um, but what would that thing be for you? Or what are you so enthusiastic about, so passionate about, that you'd be a good spokesperson for it? What would you have no problem talking about? Right? We speak about what we love. What do you love? Uh, who are you, and what are you for? What is your identity? And then what is your activity? The text before us, it's pretty simple. John's identity, witness. John's activity, witness. To bear witness about Christ. John the Apostle's desire in this text is to display John the witness as the ideal witness to Jesus Christ. 
Now, you are not John, and I am not John, thankfully. I'm not sure how well I would do in the wilderness or eating large bugs, right? I'd, I'd stick to, I'll stick to New York City and good cookies. But with, with John as our example, we are going to see here from this text that we are all witnesses. Christian or not, we are all witnesses. Every single one of us is bearing witness to something. What are you bearing witness to? What are you pointing to? Christians bear witness to Christ. Christians point to Christ. Why? Because people without Christ go to hell. Which means that people desperately and eternally need Christ. Church, we've got him. So we speak. So here's the sermon. You are not God. We've got to establish that first. That's important. But you are God's witness. Therefore, speak of the goodness and the glory and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We're going to unpack that in this text with three, I hope, simple and clear points this morning. Number one, you are not God. That sounds unnecessary to say, but I hope to demonstrate to you that we've got to start there. But number two, you are God's witness. This is your fundamental identity. If you are in Christ, you are a witness to Christ. And then third and finally, we'll see that Jesus is God and is infinitely worthy of your witness. So let's, let's read the text and see if these points come out of the text. Remember, my job is simply to expose you to the text, to open up and explain this text to you, and trust God and his spirit to work through his word. All right, so I'm going to read that word for you. Now you need to pay attention to it, because this is God's word. This is how he speaks to us and how he works in us and how he works through us. So John chapter 1, verse 19 uh, through verse 28. Pay attention, because this is what God himself wants to say to you today. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. If you would bow with me, let's begin this time with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are good. Father, you are present. Father, you speak. You are active. You work in your world. You work especially in your church. And you work in that church by your spirit through your word. So, Father, as we come now um, to your word, which is living and active, uh, we ask um, that you would work uh, through me. Uh, first of all, I pray that I would uh, faithfully and boldly and truthfully uh, preach your text. I pray that you would be the point and uh, not me. I pray that my desire would be to elevate and glorify you, not elevate and glor glorify myself. I pray that I would decrease and that you uh, would increase. I pray that your word would be front and center. I pray that you would use this word to challenge our hearts, to, to edify and encourage our hearts, um, to draw us um, a little bit closer uh, to you today. And Father, you are able to do uh, great and mighty things uh, through your word. Uh, Father, the most miraculous thing that you do is you bring sinners from death, uh, from death to life. Um, Father, you raise dead hearts, um, and we pray that you would do that um, through uh, your word. Father, please help the preaching of your word, and please help the hearing of your word. Uh, may you be honored, may we be helped, and we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, point number one, you are not God. Where is that point coming from? Look at verse 19. We are back to John uh, in the gospel of John. Remember, there are two Johns. There's the author of the book, the apostle, never named in the book. Uh, that is not the John of verse 19. That John is writing to us about this John. Generally, we refer to him as John the Baptist. And this John has been making a scene. Right, skip the first phrase of verse 19 for a moment, and you'll see that there's this delegation coming to John to question him. Why? Why is this group coming to question this man? Well, John the author is assuming that we know about this John already from the other Gospels. We read from Matthew 3 earlier. Well, let's go to Mark 
this time. If you would flip quickly to Mark chapter 1, page 836. All the Gospels begin with John as the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Why are these guys coming? Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 4. 836, Mark 1, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. That's why this group has come to John. John is causing a stir, so much so that Mark can write that all Judea, all Jerusalem were going out to him. That's a helpful verse and our understanding of how the New Testament often uses the term all, pas, in the Greek. It can't literally mean there that every single person in Jerusalem and Judea were going out to John. But it does mean that lots of persons, all kinds of persons in Jerusalem and Judea were going out to John. Right, so we've got some sort of movement or revival going on here. And so this needs to be checked out. Checked out by whom? Well, that's another important question. Back to verse 19 of John chapter 1. John says there that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. That's the first use of a word that John will use some 70 odd times in the book. And there's actually some debate surrounding John's use of the term Jews. Some have tried to argue that this term is used only negatively in John's gospel. That cannot be quite correct, as there are some clearly positive Uses. If you want to see some, there's some in chapter 4, right? In chapter 4, verse 9, when we get to the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, she will call Jesus a Jew there. Obviously not negatively. In verse 22 of chapter 4, Jesus himself says that salvation is from the Jews. These are clearly positive uses of the term. Nevertheless, in the Gospel of John, the term does, more often than not, carry with it a negative nuance. Just like the term world we saw introduced up in verses 9 and 10. If you remember back a few weeks ago, I argued that the word world in John can generally be translated as the world in opposition to God. In the same way, the term Jews in John can generally be translated as the Jews in opposition to Jesus. And now the term doesn't even generally refer to the people, but refers more specifically to the Jewish religious Leaders. For example, in chapter 7, verse 13, we'll see these uh, people who are attending the Feast of Booths who would have themselves been Jews. They are afraid to speak of Jesus. Why? For fear of the Jews. So the Jews won't speak of Jesus for fear of the Jews. What does that mean? The religious leaders, right? The, the religious authorities. That's how the term is generally used in this gospel. So there's nothing racist, there's nothing anti-Semitic in the use of the term Jews in the book. John, the author of the book, was himself a Jewish man writing about a Jewish man and encouraging your faith in that Jewish man. Right? John here is simply recording the historical reality that we've already read in verse 11. He, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, as we'll see, many will receive him, but most won't led by most of the Jewish religious leaders who will lead the opposition against Jesus. We'll see exceptions like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. But for the most part, when John the author uses the term the Jews, he's talking about the religious authorities who oppose Jesus Christ. Those are the Jews of verse 19. Here is the religious elite sending this delegation to question John. These are the men that are in power. They have the authority. They have the influence. And all of a sudden, there's this upstart. He's making waves. He's causing a scene. And he's not doing it in Jerusalem. It's not in the center of power. But he's, he's out in the wilderness. And he's strange. I think we think of John often as like this super old guy. John would have been younger than me. Remember, he's only six months older than Jesus. So he's somewhere between 30 to 33. So he's a young man. Uh, he is not part of the elite. He is not in the center of power. He's out. He's simply preaching. And everybody's coming to him. They've got to check this out. They've got to rein this in. And so they send this delegation to John to question John. And it doesn't just seem like they're just kind of curious about him. I think they're challenging him. I think they're, they're confronting him. The English, if you look there at their question, doesn't quite do justice to the nature of the question. In the Greek, it's emphatic. It's an odd construction. Literally, in the Greek, it says, you, who are you? 
There's an extra you that they put there at the beginning. You, who are you? Or, or who do you think you are? What right, what authority do you have to say what you are saying and do what you are doing? It's an identity question. And identity is everything. But I want to draw your attention to how John responds to this identity question. I love this, right? What do you put in your weird little Twitter thing? Uh, this, this, and this, and this, and this. Don't put pronouns. That's dumb. What do you put in your little Facebook thing? How do you describe yourself? This is important. If you could get this one thing this year, this could maybe be a good year. John begins his answer to the identity question, not first with who he is, but first with who he is not. This is important. Look at verse 20. The construction of verse 20 is a bit strange in the Greek. It's not just emphatic. This is like, it's triple emphatic. He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed three times. Confessed, did not deny, confessed, I am not the Christ. The second use of that important word, uh, the Christ. You see it up there in verse 17. We've been building towards this revelation of who this word was. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The whole point of the book, chapter 20, verse 31, all this is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. We're going to look at Christ in more detail next week and what that means. But first off here, John wants to be very clear that he is not this Christ. And since we've already seen that verses 1 through 18 are there to establish that this Jesus, who is the Christ, is also God himself. So for our purposes, what you need to understand this morning is that you are not God. Point number one. You are not God. That seems fairly obvious. In principle, at least. At least, but, but not in practice. Because this is actually the, the root of your problems, right? You, you think you're God. Now, you would never say that. None of us would ever say that. But all of us act like it and live like it. As Calvin says, there's not one, rich or poor, powerful or weak, oppressor or oppressed, who does not nourish a high opinion of himself within. He goes on to say, everyone flatters himself and carries, as it were, a kingdom in his breast. I love that. Everyone carries within them a kingdom in their breast. That's great. You think and you feel and you live as if you are the king, as if you are God himself. And this is the very nature of sin, simply the putting of yourself in the place that only God belongs. The insistence and the determination that your life is about you and that it's for you. This is the most basic but most difficult of truths. Your problems result generally from your failure to get this point. Your life is simply not about you. I had come up with my outline and I had worked largely up to this point in the sermon ahead of time before I got to listen to Pastor Mike's sermon from last week. And he put it perfectly, as only Mike can put it. Contrary to popular opinion, it's not about you. <laughs> Amen. And yet, many of you heard that last Sunday. How many of us lived much of this last week since that sermon living as if it was about us? This is why we get so upset and angry. This is why we get so down and discouraged. We can't quite shake the belief that life is supposed to be about us. And so when things don't go the way that we think they should go, when things don't work out to glorify us, make much of us, elevate us, make us healthy, wealthy, and happy, we fall apart. Because we think that life is supposed to be about us. And when it becomes very clear that it is not, we collapse. This is why in part, I can feel the eye rolls coming, but this is in part why I won't stop in the new year ridiculing social media in hopes of somehow convincing some of you to stop wasting your time and to stop making yourself miserable. Because this is what social media is for. This is what people use it for. It's not social media at all. It's selfish media. We are all of us constantly trying to draw attention to ourselves. This is just the fundamental nature of sinners. We're trying to draw attention to ourselves, to puff up our own egos, to feel better about ourselves, to justify ourselves, fulfill ourselves by making it all about ourselves. So social media is just one of the primary ways that we do that now. Why? This is a wonderful question to ask yourself always. Why are you posting that? Why do you do what you do on social media? Is it simply to draw attention to yourself? Could be. It might not be. It could be. And listen, I'm no better, right? It's easy to make fun of this thing that I don't do. I'm no better. I can do it right now. I can do it with my sermons. 
I can take and make a sermon that is supposed to be about Jesus Christ and the grace of God. I can make it all about me. Why do pastors get so bothered when someone criticizes their sermon? Because we have a tendency to make the sermon ultimately about us. I can seek not to glorify God in preaching a good sermon about him, but I can kind of inherently under the surface seek to glorify myself in preaching a good sermon about him for the purpose of drawing attention to myself, of elevating myself, of proving my value and my worth in my ability to impress you with a good sermon. I'm reading, preaching books right now. Because you know, like I told you before, I frequently feel like I forget how to parent, so I read some parenting books. I frequently feel like I forget how to preach, so I read some preaching books. Why am I reading those books? It's because my desire is to better teach you God's word so that I can glorify him and so that I can build you up in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Jesus Christ. Or is it because... I have this implicit desire to stand here in front of you and impress you and look good and look like I know what I'm doing. Why am I reading these books? Why is an important question. How mixed are almost all of our motives? Are you aware of how you tend to do this same thing? Or how you tend to live as if you were God by drawing attention to yourself and seeking to glorify yourself? Let's all remind ourselves at the beginning of a new year It's not about us. You will find no good by seeking your own glory. It's about him. And so you will find all kinds of good by seeking his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, Paul there takes two of the most common and daily and mundane of things, eating and drinking, and says those things, the littlest of things, Whatever you do, all the way up to the biggest of things, all of them do to the glory of God. Your eating, your exercising, your reading, your social media-ing, your Netflixing, your working, your relaxing, all of it. Everything, do it to the glory of God. Why? Again, because he's God, which means that it is all about him. And and we know this intellectually. This is what the Lord's Prayer is all about. The whole beginning says that it's not about you, but it's about him. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Meaning, may your name, may you be honored, treated as holy. May you be glorified. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. See how the nature of that prayer there is very different from the nature of many of our prayers. Him, 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 you, you, you. It's about him because he's God. Colossians 1.15 says that Christ is God, the image of the invisible God. And in verse 16 goes on to say that all things were created through him and for him. How would we live if we really believed that all things were for Christ? It is all about him. And this is good news for us because he, as God, is also eternally and abundantly Psalm 16, verse 2, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Good is found only in God. He's the center. He's the point. Your life was meant to be about him. Therefore, your life can only work and function properly if it's about him. He's the the sun. He's the center. Our sun makes up the vast majority of the mass of our entire solar system. As the weightiest thing, right? everything is linked to it and revolves around it and is held in place by it. Where the sun somehow to, to, to vanish, without the sun, everything would collapse. Right? Earth would drift off into cold, empty space. We would die. Right? It's our center that sustains us. In a similar way, God, as the all-glorious one, the weightiest thing created us to revolve around him, created us for relationship with him as he is life. Sin is a rejection of him as the center and the sun, and thus death is what results. This is why we will never find satisfaction apart from him. We will never find fulfillment if we continue to live as if we are the point, as if we are God. But you are not God. And John gets that. Right? John gives us a perfect demonstration of that. He refu- he's doing some pretty impressive stuff. He's pretty cool. He's kind of like a hipster. He's really weird and different. But he's not doing it to draw attention to himself like hipsters are. Right? He's doing it um, to be faithful to the Lord. He doesn't draw attention to himself. They come, they question him. Here's a great opportunity to elevate himself. And he says, I am not the Christ. I am not the point. This has to be the foundation. We have to start here. The Beatitudes start with, blessed are the poor 
in spirit. Right? Blessing, which is what we want, goodness, happiness, are those who are aware of their spiritual need, who are aware that they are not God and are in desperate, constant need then of God. This is the humility that we need. This is why Calvin says that the sum of the Christian life is the denial of self. Because sin is the inward turn to self, the focus on and obsession with self when we were designed to be turned to and focused on God. You are not God. And John says that he is not the Christ. Let's keep moving. Go back to the text. Look at it. Verse 21. It goes on. In verse 21, they continue to press him. What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Well, why do they ask him if he's Elijah? Well, it's because he looks like him. <laughs> Back in Mark chapter 1, we read that now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He's in the wilderness, and he's a bit wild. He's dressed sort of funny, like Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, uh, King Ahaziah, Ahab's son, remember Ahab's the worst and terrible of the kings, his son Ahaziah, not much better, he has this accident and God sends Elijah to give him a message uh, through his servants that he's going to die because he has rejected God and gone after Baal. The messengers then come to Ahaziah, deliver this message of con- con- condemnation, and Ahaziah, hey, who, who told you this? He wants to know. And they reply in verse 8, uh, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he, Ahaziah, said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. John looks like Elijah. Plus, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, one of the last verses of the Old Testament tells us, Behold, God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there's this expectation. There's something to do with Elijah and the end. And people, there are all kinds of different expectations. We just don't have time to get into all of them. But the people at the time were in some way waiting for and looking uh, for the coming of Elijah. And so they're asking John, are you him? He says, no. Again, great humility. Now, if you know your uh, New Testament, if you know your synoptic gospels, well, Jesus specifically says... In Matthew 11, verse 14, that John is Elijah, who is to come. He says the same thing in Matthew 17, verse 12. John says, I'm not Elijah. Jesus says, no, John is Elijah. Oh, what gives? Well, I think it's pretty simple. John is just answering their specific question. Right? He's saying, no, I'm not literally Elijah himself come back. It seemed that that was kind of their expectation. He says, no, I'm not that. Jesus is simply saying that John is the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies concerning Elijah, which we'll look at later. Um, so Jesus, he, he fulfills what was prophetically announced, this one that was going to come before. So John, but John says, no, I'm not. I'm not Elijah returned. I'm John. Back to the text, because I keep asking him. Next they say, well, are you the prophet? And he answered again, no. Who's the prophet? Again, there were all kinds of various different expectations at that time of what this prophet would be and do. Some thought he was the Messiah himself. Again, some thought he was some figure coming before the Messiah. But, but it's all rooted in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where Moses had said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. There's this expectation. But Moses was the prototypical figure. He brought them not only political uh, freedom and deliverance, but spiritual freedom and deliverance, as he's the one that God used to deliver them out of Egypt and into the promised land. But John says, no, I'm not that prophet. So three identity questions, three identity denials. I am not, I am not, I am not. John gets it, right? It's, it's not about him. Do we get it? You are not God. And therefore, stop living like your life is about you. But if John is none of those things, what is he? Who is he? If you are not God, well, then who are you? We don't just need identity denials. We need an identity affirmation as well. And the Jews agree. Look at verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Christian, how would you answer that question? What do you say about yourself? Who are you? Before we get to John the um, Apostle, no, uh, John the Baptist's answer about himself, let's back up to verse 19 for a moment and get John the author's answer because we skipped a critical word, that first phrase of 19 that we skipped. This is the first noun of the narrative. 
Remember, verses 1 through 18 are all prologue. They're all introduction to the book. Verse 19 is the beginning of the narrative proper, the story about Jesus. The real narrative begins in 19, and it begins with John, and it begins with the first noun, witness. Or at least I wish it began with witness. As you see there in the ESV, it says, and this is the testimony of John. I wish it just said witness because this is the same word that we've already seen repeated four times already in connection with John. Remember that in this gospel, this John is never called John the Baptist. It's not his baptism that is highlighted here, but his witness. So look up again at verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, same word, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Skip down to verse 15. John bore witness about him. In our verse, this is the witness of John. So all the same, five uses of the same word. John is a witness. As I said a couple of weeks ago, a witness is that which gives evidence or that which gives proof. Witness establishes truth. It is a a declaration or an affirmation of reason or or evidence to the truth of something. In other words, a witness is a word. It's a word about something. About what in this case? Well, back to John the witness's answer. Look at verse 23. He said, I am the voice of of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John says, I'm not the Christ. I am a voice. He's a voice. I think this is pretty neat, actually. This comes only 22 verses after Jesus, in verse 1, has been identified as the Word. Now here we have John identified as the voice. You see the connection, right? A voice is a vehicle of a word. Voices carry words. John is a vehicle of the word. Voices make words known. John makes Jesus known. So a witness is simply a word about the word, Jesus Christ. Think about it. Verses 1 through 18 are all about how the eternal word entered into the world that he created. The incarnation. We saw that kind of culminating on Christmas Sunday with the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word has entered into the world. He took on flesh. Now we're seeing that that same eternal word, capital W, Jesus, also continues to enter into the world he created through our voice, right? through our witness. In verse 18, we saw that it says no one has seen God. That's a problem. How can we know God if we cannot see him? It tells us Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. What is God like? Look to Jesus. Jesus is what God is like. And now, here simile, we have John sent by God as a witness to God, and he has made him known. John is a witness to Jesus. What is the specific content of this voice that is crying out in the wilderness? Well, John is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. Make straight the way of the Lord. That's verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 40. What does that mean? Well, Isaiah chapter 40 one of the best chapters in the Bible. Spend some time this week in Isaiah chapter 40. It's a good chance that the email on Wednesday will come from Isaiah chapter 40. It's in my brain. The opening verses directly before the verse that John quotes, verse 3, verses 1 and 2 say, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, comfort. My people. Man, isn't that, isn't that what we need right now? Comfort in the midst of all the insanity? I don't believe in the ongoing gift of prophecy, but Pastor Mike said a couple of sermons ago, what if 2021 is worse than 20? I don't know. What if the death toll continues to increase? What if there are mutant strains of the virus? What if a mob invades the Capitol building resulting in the deaths of five people? What in the world is going on? Where can you find, where can you possibly find comfort in the midst of such chaos? Oh, not in the right, not in the left, oh, but only in Christ. Right? Comfort, comfort. And then come the words that John quotes in verse 23, make straight the way of the Lord. What does that mean? 
To make straight or to prepare simply means to remove every obstacle, remove every obstruction, anything that would get in the way. Get the road ready. Well, for what? Oh, for the coming of the king. Someone great is coming. Prepare. Get things ready. Roll out the red carpet. But John, again, he's not talking about a road. He's, he's speaking metaphorically. Isaiah is and John is. So, so what are they talking about? What's John talking about? He's talking about people. He's talking about hearts. What is John's main message as we read it in Matthew 3? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so just as you get a road ready for a coming king by clearing away all the obstacles, filling in uh, the potholes, you get a heart ready for the coming king by clearing away all the pride, by clearing away all the sin that keeps us from that king who is perfectly holy. Yeah, that's what repentance is. There is no salvation without repentance. And that word in the Greek, metanoia, literally means a change of mind. And it's not just a change of mind. It's a change of mind that results in a change of life, a change of direction. That's why it's often described, repentance is described as a turning. There's a change of mind that leads to a turning, a change of direction. John is calling Israel to turn from their sin and return to God. And this is what his baptism is all about. We're going to talk more specifically about this baptism next week from verses 29 through 34. But notice that in verse 25 that it's specifically John's practice of baptism that seems to have them worked up. We're going to unpack that next week. But for now, I want us to focus on John's identity as a voice, as a witness. As John the author is setting up John the witness as the ideal model witness... Well, then I want to then take that and apply that and focus on you. How you, Christian, if you are a Christian, you are not God, but you are a witness to God. And we need to very intentionally add this to our self-understanding. We need to work this into our understanding of our identity. If you are in Christ, then you are a witness to Christ. This is not secondary. This is not optional. This is not something reserved just for pastors or missionaries or, or super Christians. This is foundational and basic to what it means to be a Christian. I mentioned the Great Commission earlier. Let's look at it for a moment. Matthew 28, page 835, if you want to look there. Matthew 28, this is our, this is our mission statement. These are our marching orders given to us by our Lord. This is what we are here for. And it starts off with our Lord and our Master in verse 18, Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right, so he's the king. He's the one that your life is about. He has all the power. He has all the authority. Therefore, we should probably listen to him. Therefore, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, speaking to his disciples, commands them to make disciples. Disciples of the disciple-making Jesus make disciples. Yeah, but maybe he's just talking to them. Maybe he's just talking to the 12 or the 11 at this point. Well, no, we know he's talking to us, to the whole church. As he goes on to say at the end of verse 20, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is not yet the end of the age. Jesus' command, therefore, still stands. It's for us. And good news, he tells us he's with us. Right? So this is our, our confidence and our hope as we seek to keep his command. But go back to the first part of verse 20. The main command is to make disciples. We do that in part by baptizing them. And verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so there is no discipleship without obedience. There is no relationship without obedience. You cannot have Jesus as Savior and not have him as Master and Lord. Disciples are students, followers. They, they do what the teacher says. They like him, and thus they become like him. But the point that I want to make right now is that when Jesus says that discipleship includes teaching to observe and obey all that he commands, well, that then includes this command, Right? That includes this command to make disciples. We cannot be obedient to him and have nothing to do with the making of disciples. We cannot be obedient to him and have nothing to do with speaking of him. As Spurgeon provocatively said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Right? Either a missionary or an imposter. Because this is just part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. 
Just a couple of verses. You can just jot them down. I'm just going to run through them. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. This is related to what we're looking at in point one. You are not your own. We just burn that into your brain. You are not your own. My afternoon, when I'm done with my work, it's, it's not for me. It's not like now I get to do what I want and I get to relax and watch um, some, some football or do whatever I would like to do. No, I'm not my own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, that passage is specifically about sexual immorality. Uh, men, if you are looking at pornography, come talk to us. Get help. It's nothing but misery, bondage, despair, and it could result in death. Right? Christians have nothing to do with such things. Paul says flee sexual immorality. Why? Because we're not our own. We were bought with a price, an infinitely valuable price, the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, honor him with your body. But in the same way, you could take that and apply that to what we're talking about. You were bought with a price, therefore honor him with, with your tongue. By, by speaking of him, you are not your own. You are not for you. You are for him. So, so speak. That's the very thing that you were made for. 1 Peter 2.9 says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That, purpose statement, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ, and on and on and on we could go. This is, just, this is just what it means to be a Christian. Christians are those who were dead but have been made alive in Christ. Christians are those who are painfully aware of their own sinfulness and wretchedness. If you haven't had that just real encounter with how awful you are, Listen, okay, I've said this before, but if you knew my heart and if you knew my whole history and everything that I've thought and everything that I've done, you would never listen to me. Never. Same way, if I knew your heart and your whole history and everything, you, I wouldn't even waste my time talking to you, right? Because we are all such wretches within, and we know that if we're honest with ourselves. Yeah, that's what makes the gospel so glorious, by the way. I would never be your friend if I knew all those things. Uh, Jesus knows all of it. He knows your wretchedness better than you know it. He knows my wretchedness better than I know it. And yet, God, perfectly knowing us in all of our sin, sends his son to rescue us and to redeem us and to wipe all that out by laying it all on Jesus Christ. You've got to understand the sin to appreciate the grace. That's amazing. And so once we've known that, once we are profoundly aware of our wretchedness, wretchedness and by the grace of God are made profoundly aware of his infinite grace and mercy coming to save us in our wretchedness, well, man, then as a result, we speak, we sing, we become so overwhelmed with God's goodness toward us, we become so passionate about not a product or a place, but a person, the person. And so we gladly become spokespersons for him. You are not God. But if you are a Christian, you have been saved by the grace of this God. Therefore, you are then a witness to God. Your life is not about you. We find misery as we keep trying to make it about us. But it is about him. And we actually find the joy and the satisfaction and the fulfillment as we increasingly make it about him. You're not the point. I'm not the point. But we do exist to, to point to the one who is the point. And don't forget the mission statement that we should all consider this year. People without Christ go to hell. Just write that on your hand. Put it on a sticky note on your computer. Put it up on your wall. People without Christ go to hell. And ask yourself if you really believe that. If your life demonstrates that you really believe that every single person in your family Every single person in your surrounding neighborhood, every single person in your workplace, every single person you encounter, if they remain without Christ, they will go to hell. You don't have to move to the Middle East like Sam Cantillo. You don't have to excel at open-air evangelism like Peter Lee. You don't have to be as naturally gifted as a Diana Cantillo or a Marina Santiago. You simply have to be faithful and intentional. Here's my problem. It's, it's, it's intentionality. Right? Think about it. We believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. We believe in his meticulous providence, which means that he has specifically placed you exactly where you are. And this God does nothing without purpose. Therefore, he has specifically placed you exactly where you are for a specific purpose. Maybe part of that purpose is simply to gently but boldly speak of him to those he has placed 
around you. They're not there by accident. You're not where you are by accident. Yeah, that's, that's all evangelism is. It's speaking of Jesus. It's speaking the good news of the God who saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is something, just kind of prepare, this is something we hope to emphasize a lot this year. Because most of us, and my hand will go up first, are weak on witness. But that must change. And I must change. Because people without Christ go to hell. And so, Woodside, you are not God, but you are a witness to God. And point number three, I'll just touch on this, and this will lead us perfectly into next week, where we'll look at this in more detail. Uh, You are a witness to God. Uh, Good news. Jesus is God, and he is infinitely worthy of your witness. I I can plead with you. I can guilt you. I can manipulate you. I can read all the books in the world. But until you and I see the infinite beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, we will continue to struggle to faithfully speak of him. It starts first with knowing him and loving him. It starts first with the point of this whole book, right? Remember at the end, believe. Verses 1 through 18 have established that this Christ is God himself. Look again at verse 23. John is making straight the way of the Lord. In its original context, in the Hebrew, that Lord is Yahweh. He's making straight the way of God himself. Well, here is John making straight the way for Jesus, who is God himself. And then look down at verse 27, and we'll come back to this. They're again questioning John about why he's baptizing next week. But notice that he doesn't really answer their question. Why are you baptizing? Well, he doesn't really tell them. Uh, this is a great evangelism tip, by the way. You're going to get all kinds of what, smoke shields and misdirections and kind of defeater arguments and secondary points. Don't just point them to Jesus. Right? Do everything that you can to just bring it back to Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Because that's what John does. Look at it. Among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John, who Jesus calls the greatest man, is nothing compared to this God-man, Jesus Christ. He said, I can't even carry his shoes. A Jewish rabbi wrote not long after this that a rabbi could require his disciple to perform all the acts a slave would perform, except for the act of untying his sandals. Because this was the lowest of the low. Listen, I don't like feet. I don't. Um, but 2,000 years ago, they're wearing sandals, and it is hot, and it is sandy. Uh, feet were dirty and sweaty. Uh, dealing with sandals was demeaning and humiliating. This was slave work. John says that not only was such a task not beneath him, it was, a, it was above him. He, he was just not worthy of the one who is infinitely worthy. And again, that's the beauty of the gospel. This is where you start if you struggle with evangelism. If we can see that not only are we not God, but that we have committed cosmic treason against God, rejected and rebelled against God, the good, the God of infinite glory and goodness and beauty, and yet here in Christ we see that same God that we have rejected coming for us, coming for wretched sinners like us. That's how it starts. That's how the love that he pours into our hearts begins to overflow in a desire to love others and love them particularly by speaking to them of the one who has saved us from our sins. The one who is infinitely high, God impossibly low. The king became a servant to save his rebellious enemies. The God who became man so that we could be forgiven, redeemed, restored to relationship and made his sons and daughters. Until that grabs you, Evangelism will always be a struggle and a chore. But the more that you can see yourself in your sin and see God in his grace, the more you will increasingly be compelled to speak. The more you will actually desire and delight to speak. I've got a long way to go myself. But I'm I'm excited. I'm I'm encouraged. I'm I'm hopeful and prayerful. I want to be more like John is here in this text. I want Jesus Christ to be the thing that I am so passionate and enthusiastic about, that I live for him, that I love him, and that I speak about him. I want you to pray that for me, and I'm going to be praying that for you and for all of us corporately as a church. Because church, listen, you're not God. We are not God. So we've got to stop living as if we were, as if life was about us. But by the grace of that God, we are now witnesses to God. And so we do exist him. We preach Christ crucified because people without Christ go to hell. And because Christ is infinitely worthy. He's infinitely gracious. He's infinitely good. 
Let's pray that God would save sinners through Woodside Community Church in 2021. If you would bow with me and I'll I'll close our time with, with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who saves sinners. We thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves. You did not leave us to our sin. You have come after your people. Uh, You have come after your people uh, through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is God with us. Father, you are present with us uh, through your Son, Jesus Christ. You are present with us by your Spirit uh, through your Word in this very moment. So I ask now that you would comfort and encourage us. Father, I pray that you would use your words uh, to continue to shape us into the image of your Son. Father, make us more like Jesus Christ. That is what you have promised to do. That is what you have promised to bring completion, to completion. And so I ask that you would continue that work uh, through the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. Father, we fall so short. Father, we see our identity here. Uh, You have called us to be your ambassadors. Uh, You have made us lampstands and and lights and witnesses. Uh, Father, we are often so hesitant not to speak. pray that you would forgive us. I pray that as we seek to, to emphasize this aspect of our identity, pray that we would see the great privilege that it is uh, to be your witnesses. Father, I pray that we would be uh, not just uh, driven by uh, guilt um, to do this, but that as you would continue to, to grab us with the beauty of Jesus Christ and compel us with the grace of the gospel, that you would make us a people who cannot help but speak of the thing, the one that we most love. So Father, first, help us to fall in love more and more with your Son, Jesus Christ. And then we ask uh, that in this uh, year uh, where things just increasingly seem and show us that there's, there's no hope in this world. There's no hope in man. There's no hope in political systems. There's, there's no hope anywhere. Father, there's infinite, eternal, great hope in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to believe that. And then help us to love those around us by pointing them to the one who can give them life and identity and hope, um, Father, in heaven itself uh, with you. Father, we pray that you would save sinners through the individual, personal, and also through the corporate ministry of Woodside Community Church in 2021. We love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.